0: Interesting stuff in this passage, isn't there? Uh, we get to read about uh, how the Christians, or the followers of Jesus, got the name Christian at Antioch. And it really just means uh, Christ follower. They belong to Jesus, something along those lines. And uh, the name was given to them. They didn't claim it for themselves, they didn't walk around going, you know, we should call ourselves Christians. But some people saw how they lived, saw who they were, and decided that they were so characterized by their devotion to Jesus Christ that they said, you are Christ followers. You are Christians. That's what we're going to call you. You know, I'd like to live like that. Just, this is for free this morning. It's not actually a key point in the passage, but uh, I'd really like for people to see me and to see our church and to see each one of you and think, there's Christian. Not with any cynicism, not with any sense of, uh, you know, I don't like Christians, but wow, those people are like Jesus, and I want to know Jesus because of it. I think, Kelly, do we have a couple of slides here? Uh, Yeah, I want to share a couple of slides with you this morning. Uh, Just like Steve uh, took a bunch of pictures in Honduras. Uh, I actually didn't take a bunch of pictures, but I was in Antioch uh, when I was, I guess it was 2013, maybe, 2014. And uh, there's not a lot that we can see in Antioch. It's not a big, bustling city. It's today called Antakya. It's in the south of Turkey, right next to the Syrian border. I think they probably fought over it once or twice throughout the years. Uh, But outside of the city, you find this interesting facade built into a a hillside. And inside, if you want to go to the next slide, uh, Kelly, you have uh, this cave and this is called St. Peter's Grotto. You can see a statue that someone put there, I have no idea when, of St. Peter. And uh, then we're standing around an altar there. Uh, one of my professors in seminary very sacrilegiously put his hat on top of the altar, uh, but we'll we'll let him slide. He's a good guy. And uh, legend has it that uh, this is called St. Peter's Grotto because supposedly Peter helped hollow this out of... The hillside. And the early, we, whether or not Peter actually helped build this, we are pretty sure that almost from the very beginning of Christianity in Antioch, there were Christians worshiping in this place. As a matter of fact, there is a a sort of tunnel, you can see it on the left side there, uh, that is an exit that people said was a secret exit that the Christians used to uh, get out when they were being persecuted. Uh, so it's really interesting place. Christianity in Antioch is almost as old as the faith itself. And as a matter of fact, Antioch became probably the most important church in the first century for at least some period of time. And we find out why in this passage. We actually read who, who uh, comes to this church. We had Barnabas, but who did Barnabas bring to the church in Antioch? Did you catch that? Saul, who we know today as Paul, who would go on to be the greatest Christian missionary who ever lived. And do you know what church sent Barnabas and Saul on their missionary journeys? It's obvious. It's okay. You can say it. It was Antioch. Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas out on their missionary journeys. Antioch was the church that supported them and loved them and commissioned them and did all of these things. And through the church in Antioch, the gospel went out into the whole rest of the world. It's amazing. Antioch has this amazing history. Now, I'm going to change gears just a bit. And uh, I want you to stick with me while I talk about this. Um, I've been at the church here with you all for nine years, as of July 1st. Nine years. You've seen my kids grow up. Someone was just saying this morning, I can't believe Jonathan is going into kindergarten in the fall. Three of my children were born here, and the other one was uh, one, one, when we got here. He's about to turn two. No. He's about to turn, yeah. There is a number that he was when we came. <laughs> one, we believe. And uh, when I first got here, this is why I want you to stick with me, because this is a story. Our average attendance was about 35 on a Sunday. And we consistently grew numerically from 2013 to 2019. We peaked at an average attendance of around 65 to 70. And some Sundays, we were actually running out of room in the sanctuary. We were starting to wonder, what are we going to do, right? Because we're going to have to either find more seats or have another service or we're going to have to do something uh, because it feels like this is not going to be a big enough facility for much longer. That church growth was exciting and affirming, and it felt like we must be doing something right, like God had big plans for us. We know in this place that it's not about the number of people. Numbers don't tell the whole story, but when numbers are growing, it feels like something good is happening. They tell something, at the very least. And then, of course, uh, COVID hit And most of 2020 was spent merely trying to keep our heads above water. And then 2021 felt like we were moving forward a bit, but a lot of it was just trying to recover some of what we'd lost in the previous year. And now as of last month, in the month of May, we averaged 45 people in the sanctuary. And if you've been here for nine years like me, it feels a little bit like a step back, doesn't It feels like it, something feels... Not the same. Maybe something even feels wrong. Now, these numbers that we're talking about need a lot of nuance. We need to acknowledge and celebrate that we have a brand new ministry. And it's one that's not visible to most of us. We have an online ministry. And did you know that there are 20 people every week who are joining us online? I never expected to do online ministry and I never, I probably, especially, never expected to do it here, but we are, and there are people. Some of you watching right now who are connected to the church. Some of those are folks who they can't get here on Sunday mornings anymore because of their health or or because of a different reason. Some of those are folks who are related to us, like my parents. You know, I don't know if we should count them or not, but they are important, valuable people. So we will, mom and dad. Hello. Um, <laughs> And some of them are people that we don't know at all. So those numbers I was talking about, they need nuance. We should celebrate that we have this online ministry that actually is significant in the life of our church. We need to remember that we have new people who have not only joined our church over the last couple of years, but who are refreshing and revitalizing us old hands. Now, I know you all get offended when I even sound like I'm trying to describe myself as old, but please indulge me for a moment. There are good things that are happening in our church, and we see them. We see you. I mean, we don't actually see you if you're online. That would be creepy, but we know that you're there. And I don't want to lose sight of those things. But with that said, my sense of the general feel uh, of the church on Sunday mornings here in the sanctuary is that things aren't as exciting as they used to be. Sometimes it feels like we've taken a step back. And I think for some of us, some things that maybe we were happy with in the church as long as the church was to our perception doing well, we're less happy with today. Maybe we're even frustrated about. There is some dissatisfaction, some worry, and some unease. And what do we do with that? Now, if if you are visiting for like the first or second time this morning, I'm sorry that we're kind of stepping you right into the middle of all of this, but this is what real life looks like in the church. First, I think it's perfectly reasonable and good to want to stop and take a breath. To be reminded of the rock-solid foundation of our faith. God isn't different today than he was three years ago. To let God encourage us and build us back up in a sense. If you're here this morning and you're feeling like, I am not comfortable or I'm anxious with the direction of the church these days, either because you feel like there is change that you didn't sign up for or because you feel like it just I'm worried because it seems smaller than it was in the past, I want to encourage you that it's, it's okay to stop for a minute and say, okay, what's happening here? And God, would you encourage me and build me up? And church family, would you encourage me and build me up? This is something that, as I was thinking about it this week, I want to do a better job at this in the near term, just to say, hey, we're still God's people out here. God still loves us. He still cares for us. We are still valuable. We are still worthy, not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is. He's still the one who invited us, as Kayla was saying, into the very life of the Trinity. None of that has changed. But I think that there's also another way to find encouragement for where our church is this morning. And by the way, if you're here and you're thinking, I didn't know we needed encouragement, now you're kind of freaking out a little bit, that's okay. It's all right. Because like I said, our church, I don't think, is in a bad place. I think it's in an unfamiliar place. And I think that this passage tells us something about what our way forward looks like this morning, too. First of all, I want us to see that if you are here this morning and you're feeling a little bit like something feels a little off in the church, something feels like it's not as good as it was in the past, I want to let you know that that's how the Jerusalem church felt in our passage this morning. Did you pick up the beginning here? It says uh, that... Uh, because those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. I just want to pay attention to the first part of that right now, because stop and think. The church in Jerusalem was feeling like things aren't going as well as they were in the past, right? Persecution broke out. Some of our people ran away, and they've gone somewhere else, They're not here. And some of these people, they weren't just, you know, filling seats in the church. They were actually doing really important ministry. And by the way, there's no one in the church who just fills a seat. We're all called to belong to the body of Christ. We're all called to bring our gifts and our talents. And you know what? There are also times in life when we are called to merely receive what the church has for us. Those things are all true. But I think the church in Jerusalem must have been feeling sort of like, we're not sure about the future of our church. We know who Jesus is. We know what he's done, but we don't understand what he's doing right now. Persecution came, and the church in Jerusalem was saying, what is the future of our church? And sometimes we can only understand the future of the church in hindsight. Our job right now is just to be faithful and keep doing the things that Jesus cares about. Keep telling people about him. Keep pursuing him in our daily lives. Keep living like Jesus. Keep going deeper into all that he has to offer. Keep loving and encouraging each other. You know, the nice thing about the Christian life is in most ways, it's not complicated. That's why Jesus could boil it down into two commandments, right? Love God, love your neighbor. And often we're sitting around going, oh, what do I do with my life? What do I do next? And God's just tapping his foot and it's like, seriously, love God, love your neighbor. Those are the commandments. Everything else is negotiable. Love God and love your neighbor. But we step away from the Jerusalem church for a few minutes here. It says that these people who ran because of the persecution, we don't know if they they ran because they needed to or if they ran because they were afraid, but whatever the case, they went out and something amazing starts to happen. They don't stop talking about Jesus. Whatever had happened in Jerusalem to drive them away, they are still convinced that Jesus is good news. And they talk to people about it. They went... Long distances sometimes. Now, Antioch is not a long distance by our modern reckoning. But it was a long distance when you had to walk the whole way. It says, most of them went out. Uh, actually, literally, what it says here is that... Uh, some of them, on this long travel, spread the word only among Jews, but some of them also, uh, men from Cyprus and Cyrene in particular, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Let me tell you how surprising this is. You know, First of all, Uh, We, in the last several weeks, have been learning about how Jews don't mix casually with Gentiles. Remember last week, Peter went to Cornelius' house, and that was a big deal, that he went into Cornelius' house, much less had a conversation with him, much less shared the gospel about Jesus Christ with him. Jews didn't even go into Gentiles' houses. But God was doing this amazing work where he said, I love the Gentiles as well, and I am sending you to them. And so they started to go. Some of the church still only speaking to Jews, but some of them start speaking to the Greeks. And it's even more amazing that this is happening in Antioch. Let me tell you a little bit about the history of Antioch. Okay, Antioch uh, was founded by one of the Alexander the Great's generals uh, about four centuries earlier, and uh, it was a free city. You know, he, he invited a bunch of Jews. He gave them free citizenship, and things seemed to be pretty good. Uh, of course, then the Seleucid Empire, of which Antioch was the capital, uh, he became very unfriendly to the Jews, caused a lot of Jew-Gentile tension, and then we see this sort of boiling over in the first century A.D., when a couple of things happen. First, you have Caligula. He's the emperor of Rome. And the emperors of Rome up to this point, he's like the fourth or fifth emperor, and the emperors of Rome up to this point are satisfied to be worshipped after they have died. Say, when I die, I become a god, and then you'll worship me. And the first four or so emperors were content with that. But Caligula says, I don't want to wait. Start worshipping me now. And he gave this command to the whole empire. As a matter of fact, he commanded the governor in Judea to place a statue of, him, of Caligula, of himself, in the Jerusalem temple. How do you think the Jews took that? They were displeased. As a matter of fact, the governor there knew that if he tried to do that, he would have like, not just a riot, but probably a full-on rebellion on his hands. So he refused to do it. So things were okay in Jerusalem, but down in Alexandria, Egypt, they weren't so great. The Alexandrians were like, what's wrong with you? You're bad Roman citizens because you don't worship the emperor, and if you don't worship the emperor, bad things will happen to us. So the Alexandrians started a pogrom against the Jews and started killing them wherever they could find them. And then this unrest traveled up into Antioch as well, and we know in Antioch, the Gentiles there started a pogrom against the Jews, and they started killing the Jews And we have a source, an ancient source, that tells us that in response, in Jerusalem, the high priest got together an army of Jews, 30,000 of them, marched up to Antioch, and they killed all the Gentiles they could find. So, let me ask you, is the place where Jewish-Gentile relations uh, are going to get better, do you think that's going to be Antioch? No, not at all. That's like if, uh, you know, we went to the caves in Afghanistan to the, you know, I guess the Taliban run the country now, so we could just go to the capital and say, hey, I'm an American. Let's be friends. Of course not. That wouldn't work out well for anybody. But something amazing happens in Antioch. Some of these Jewish Christians come into the city and they start telling people about Jesus Christ. And the Lord's hand was with them. And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. It's a miracle. It's amazing. Now, news of this reached the church in Jerusalem. And how are they going to respond? Right? They live in the city that uh, sent an army against Antioch. But they sent Barnabas. And Barnabas, you, did you hear how he was described? It says he was, in verse 24, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. They didn't send the B team, did they? They sent the best man that they could find. How uncomfortable do you think that must have been in a purely human situation? calculus if you did the human math hey it feels like our church is sort of falling apart but we heard that there is this church that's getting started up in Antioch among all these people we don't like very much let's send our best church member up there to help I think a lot of churches would make that call make that decision Does it make sense from a human standpoint? Don't we usually think, well, you know, we have to take care of us first. got to make sure that that we're okay. Because if we're not okay, then we can't help the people around us. And maybe that's more a rationalization than anything else, isn't it? Maybe it's more saying, we should keep the best for ourselves, and then out of our surplus, we'll give to others. Is that what God did for us? Did God go like, well, you know... I won't send my only son. You know, I'll send like a middling angel. No, he sent his only son. He sent his best. And that's what the Jerusalem church did as well. And then Barnabas realizes that the ministry in Antioch is getting so big that he can't do it all himself. So he went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Remember, this is Saul's hometown. And we're pretty sure that Saul has been disowned by his family for being uh, for becoming a Christian. And so he is just off on his own somewhere, trying to figure out how he's going to live this life. And Barnabas goes and finds him because Barnabas understands that Saul has a special call to the Gentiles. And he grabs Saul and he takes him back to Antioch. And they start doing ministry together. For a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people And the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Antioch was the place where they said, if anyone looks like Jesus, it's these people. Isn't it amazing? Not even in Jerusalem did they characterize the church by calling them Christians. But in Antioch, they did. And that's not to put Jerusalem down. That's not to put the Jerusalem church down. But rather to say what an amazing work God was doing in Antioch. But what about the Jerusalem church? right? What about the Jerusalem church who gives up its best assets to this church of strangers in Antioch? What's going to happen to them? During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. They're still sending their best people, aren't they? One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. Uh, we actually have record in Suetonius. Suetonius, an ancient Roman historian, tells us that Claudius's reign was plagued by droughts all over the Roman Empire. Josephus, uh, an ancient Jewish historian living in the first century, uh, tells us a story about how the famine got so bad in Jerusalem that neighboring kings and queens who were sympathetic to their faith, or maybe even admired their faith, sent them gifts to try and feed the starving population of Jerusalem. We know that there is really widespread famine throughout the Roman Empire, just as Agabus predicted. And then it says the disciples, speaking of the church at Antioch, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. Do you remember the story of uh, Joseph all the way back in Genesis? Joseph, uh, uh, we made a musical about him a number of years ago. He had a Technicolor dream coat, if you recall. And uh, he was his father's favorite out of his 12 sons because he was born of the good wife, according to Jacob. That's why we don't marry multiple spouses, by the way. It doesn't work out ever. And uh, Joseph's brothers were so jealous of him that they, uh, they sold him into slavery in Egypt and went home and told they dipped his robe in blood and told his father he was killed by a wild animal. Joseph didn't do anything wrong. Joseph, while he was in Egypt, he was a servant in the household of a significant person, Potiphar. And Potiphar's wife tried to uh, seduce Joseph. And Joseph, when he resisted and said, no, that would be wrong. That would be a sin against God and a sin against my master, you know, your husband. And then she went to her husband and said, Joseph tried to seduce me. And so what happened? Of course, Joseph ended up in prison. He's done nothing wrong. And everything in his life is falling apart. And while he's in prison, he meets uh, the, the Pharaoh's cupbearer and the baker. And they each have a dream. And Joseph interprets those dreams and says, you are going to be executed by Pharaoh. That's a bummer. You are going to be raised back up by Pharaoh. So that, and you'll get your old position and all of the benefits back. And exactly that happened. And Joseph said, please remember me when you get there because I'm rotting in jail. And, of course, the cupbearer forgot him until Pharaoh had a dream, and the cupbearer says, you know, please, Pharaoh, you know, don't, don't be angry with me, but there's a man in prison who can interpret that dream for you. And He brings Joseph up, and Joseph interprets the dream. Pharaoh makes him second in the whole kingdom. Only Pharaoh had more authority than him. Joseph oversees all of this, and then what should happen a few years later, but the famine comes along. It's terrible, and then Joseph's brothers run out of food, and they come to Egypt to beg for some grain. And they come before Joseph. And there's a lot of drama, very 90210 happening out there. But Joseph eventually breaks down in front of his brothers. And he says, it's me, Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. And his brothers are terrified, like now he's going to get back at us. And Joseph says, but I'm not going to get back at you. You meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. I will save you. Your lives, and that's exactly what he does. Does this sound at all familiar to our passage this morning? Is there a parallel? The church in Jerusalem, yeah, you know, they're holding it together, but it's tough. And they find another need, and they send their best man out, and then they continue to love and support this church, and then a great famine comes, and the church that was already struggling in some respects in Jerusalem is now in danger of literally starving to death, and the church that they in faith stepped out in love takes up a collection and sends food to them and changes their circumstances. It doesn't make sense from a human perspective, does it? Other than looking back and saying, gosh, that's a lot of coincidences. But when we know that God's at work, we start to recognize and understand that we feel like when we withdraw, we say things are hard, things are difficult, things are tough, and we need to step back, and we need to take care of ourselves. It's not that that's wrong. It's not that we should never do that. But it's we shouldn't start being afraid of sending out when the opportunity comes. Because in God's calculus, in God's math, he's not short of the resources that we need. And he provides them at exactly the right time. The ministry doesn't have to stop when the church is struggling or when the church is under siege. Sometimes, when you continue to step out, that's exactly how you'll make your way out of that dark and difficult period. It's true for the church. It's true for us as individuals. We can do it not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. He turns death into life. Is he going to fail to provide for us today. That's rhetorical. No.